This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Here you go. Here you go. Panic. Nothing personal word of the day. It's Friday, May 26th, 2023, and the Heat are panicked. Or maybe it's just their fans. Or maybe it's nobody. Welcome to Nothing Personal. We are live on the Nothing Personal with David Sampson YouTube channel. How good a feeling is it that no matter what happens, Coca and I, when the clock strikes 8 a.m., we're here. I was watching the game last night. Another game seven for the Boston Celtics, their second in a row. Everyone's picking the Celtics. It's become this whole thing on social media, on sports media. All of the commentators are saying, this is the time. Richard Jefferson came out, Ben Stiller, Celtics in seven. Everyone is saying, this is where history is made because the Heat are the lower seed. The Heat are the worst team. The Celtics can't miss shots four games out of seven. Only three games out of seven. It was a home game for the Celtics. Granted, the Celtics have not been playing as well at home as they have on the road in this series. But all of that said, game five is not a must win for the Heat. Game five is a must win for the Celtics. And the reason it was a must win for the Celtics is they were down three to one. All of the noise that you're hearing is ridiculous. However, let's take you inside the heat locker room. You're down, the game's going on, you realize NGTH. It's just not gonna happen. You watch that game, we all had the same feeling. It felt from the tip, there was something there that this was not gonna be their moment to win on the road for a third straight time. Now, Winning on the road three straight times in a series, not all that easy, not all that common, but let's forget about that. This is just a single road game. Let's pretend this is an individual spin of the wheel. A game five, excuse me, a game five. Pretend that it's 2-2, 3-1 Boston, 3-1 Heat, doesn't matter. It's game five in Boston. When the game starts and you realize it's not gonna be your day, you call a couple times out, you talk to the players in the huddle, you hope that there's a run, you hope there's a turnaround, but deep inside when you've got a 3-1 lead and you're on the road in game five, there is a sense of urgency that is not there. No matter what you put on the board before the game, no matter what Pat Riley says to the team, no matter what you do to motivate your team, 
We got to close them out now. We can't give them life. All of the words that are being used in the media, those words do not exist inside the clubhouse because they do not exist inside an athlete's head. When you're up 3-1 on the road, the edge that you've had the first four games, it doesn't exist and you can't manufacture it. You cannot pretend it's a game seven without it being a game seven. You cannot pretend that a game five on the road is a must win game for your team. And if it's not a must win game, it is very hard once you see that shots are not being made to recover. The only chance the Heat had to win the game last night is if they came out and all of a sudden they felt it. They were just hitting shot after shot after shot. When you're down 15 at the end, I got the Friday voice, four, eight, six, nine. Panic. Nothing personal. Word of the day. It's May 26th, 2023. The Heat should not be panicked. When you're down 15 points at the end of the first quarter, that's it. Turn it off. Go watch the nearest, newest episode of Dave. Go get excited for the finale of Love and Death or Mrs. Maisel. You do not need to watch the rest of this game. Let's talk about what it means, though. Do you hear that? That's what it means. Losing game five in Boston, that's what it means to the Heat. Hold on, listen for it. Here it comes. Nothing. Before a series starts, you're sitting with the coach and the GM. You're going through your pitching plans. You're going through what the series looks like if it's the NBA or the NHL. You're going through whether or not you're starting on the road, starting at home. You're looking at your, you're basically planning out the series. You're planning it out with your players. You're planning it out with your coaches. I don't care what the sport is. When you are an underdog in a series and the Heat are tremendous underdogs going into this series, every plan that you make before game one, every single plan has you winning the series in six. It has you having a chance to win the series in six. And that's where the Miami Heat are. I tried to explain it in 280 characters or fewer Last night, I get a little more time today. When as an athlete or as a front office, you have something that's going according to plan, one of the most important parts of keeping that plan going is understanding that losing is part of a plan. And I don't mean you plan to lose or try to lose. What I do mean is that you accept what it takes to get to where you want to be. In order to try to clinch a game six at home, the score of the series has to be three to two. We can outline which games we think we're going to win according to the pitching matchups, and we do that. We can outline what we want to see in terms of who gets at bats, what we're going to try to do in certain situations. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't but where do you think I got my consequentialist nature from? It certainly got perfected 
during my career in baseball because it was always taught to me and I tried to teach it to others that sometimes the way you get to where you're trying to get to is not what you had thought it would be, but the only relevant point is that there you are. And if you spend your time wondering why you got to where you are not on the path that you thought you were on, then you're ignoring the reality of the moment and it's the moment you plan for and the moment that you wanted. The Miami Heat got onto the plane last night from Boston. They flew home to Miami with not one ounce of panic, zero. Not one player, not one coach, not one Pat Riley, not one Bob McAdoo or one Alonzo Mourning. They go into game six tomorrow night, Saturday, May 27th, with an opportunity to close out a series in the way that they had wanted. Now, let's go to the other side. The other side is the reality that the Boston Celtics have all the momentum. The Heat won the first three games. The Celtics won the last two games. The Celtics are all of a sudden not turning the ball over. The Heat are turning the ball over. The Celtics are all of a sudden shooting three-pointers and making them to the tune of 34 for their last 83. The Heat are not hitting three-pointers. They've only hit 17 in their last 55. Jimmy Butler had a terrible game, five, scoring 14 points. It looks like the Heat were giving up. It is the end of the world as we know it. How can the Heat feel fine? Well, in the last 149 times that a team had a 3-0 lead, they lost the series exactly zero times. But what if I told you only 11 times was there even a game six? Does that mean you panic? What if the Heat lose game six? Then we go to a game seven in Boston, that's it. Well. Three times a team with a 3-0 lead went to a game seven and they won. Why? Because no one has ever won down 0-3. Is this the time that it happens? All records are broken. All things that have never been done eventually get done. Is this the moment with the number two seeded Boston Celtics, clearly the better team, taking advantage of possibly having two more games where they hit shots? Are we witnessing history? Therefore, should it be time for the Heat to panic? That's not how teams think. It is the biggest difference between fans, media, and players and organizations. With the way we feel as fans, that's not what goes on inside the clubhouse. Not one member of the Heat is thinking to themselves, wow, we could be in the middle of history being made against us. Not one, not for a second, it's not even discussed. They go into the game tomorrow night with full confidence that they're gonna win, backed by nobody. Vegas has, them fa has the Celtics favored by three, which means Vegas now assumes that the Celtics are gonna win the series, I guess, because they're gonna be favored in game six if they win game six, they'll be favored in game seven, yet the Celtics are still plus money to win the series. Why? Because it's never been done before. Professional athletes do not panic. We do as fans. Professional athletes do not give any thought to history. We do as fans. Professional organizations do not spend their time trying to beat odds, trying to avoid making history. 
They go into game six with the game plan in the NBA. The game plan is semi-easy, which is make more shots than you miss and you're likely to win the game, which is a whole nother story about strategy, a whole nother story about why I'm so down on the NBA because of the way the game has become where it's not the better team anymore that wins. It's just who happens to be hot that particular day. But all of that said, for everyone out there who thinks that the Heat are panicked, they're not. For all of you who are panicked, don't. All of that said, wait till you hear my pick of the day. So I'm watching the NBA games for the last few years. Not like I used to. I used to be a much bigger fan. And I was a fan. But my career robbed me of being a fan, which totally stinks. Trying to get it back. I tried to get it back with the Knicks and it didn't work. I went full Barry Manilow. Tried to get the feeling back again and couldn't. But now... I'm beginning to fall back in love. And I'm looking at the game and I don't love what I see. I love the feeling that I'm trying to get back, but the way the game is played, and this doesn't make me a boomer, it doesn't make me old school, I just don't think it looks good. And one of the things that drives me crazy about the NBA is the same thing that drives me crazy about soccer, except it's been a part of that sport forever. The concept of flopping makes me crazy. I've spoken to players, side note, Coca. Do you know that uh, we'll talk to players about when a pitch comes inside and we need a base runner? We talk about selling the HBP. And there were years before Instant Replay started where if you sold it well enough, you could get awarded first base. And that is why it's, it's the baseball version of flopping. There's several things, and I view flopping contextually as trying to put one over on the referee or umpire in order to benefit you or your team. That's sort of the definition in my mind. So there's several things that we talk to baseball players about selling. Traps, when you trapping is when you're diving for a ball and sometimes it hits the ground first and then goes right into the glove. But what we teach them is, hey, when you trap a ball, you proceed as though that ball's been caught. You wait for the umpire to know that it's a trap because sometimes the replay, people are gonna miss it post-replay, but pre-replay, this was a, a done deal. Sometimes umpires are gonna miss it. So you act as though you've made the play because players always know. Players know whether they've caught the ball. Players know whether they've been elbowed in the face. Players know whether they've been hit by a pitch, but we teach them to act. Even if you get away with it 1% of the time and 99 times you are said, hey, you're, you're an idiot. Would you get back in the box? You didn't get hit by a pitch. Or hey, of course you didn't catch that ball. If 1% of the time you get it past, that means you've been successful. NBA has this thing called flopping. So does soccer. Flopping is when there's some amount of contact, sometimes there's zero contact, and a player acts like they got hit by a truck. They always end up like on this picture, if you're on Nothing Personal with David Sampson, arms out like an airplane, legs up in the air as though you've just been hit by a train. Or the push in the back one is one of my favorite ones. When two people go for a rebound and they realize that the one in front can't get the rebound, so the guy in front then lunges himself forward as though he's been pushed in the back. That's a good one. You have to have the concomitant facial gestures. You have to be, to sell it, I need grimacing. 
I need you to hold the part of your body that's hurt. I need you to stay on the ground until you get the call. In baseball, you start, you put the bat down and start going to first base. You trap the ball, you throw it in, you throw it behind the runner, trying to get the runner doubled. You act as though the action is as you want it to be, not how it actually is. The NBA is getting together according to Shams of The Athletic. And the competition committee, that's the same thing we had in baseball, that's getting together, trying to make the sport better, trying to look at rules, trying to think, is this the game that fans want? Is this the game that owners want? The competition committee got together in basketball and apparently they're considering an in-game penalty for flopping. If you engage in flopping and you're called out on it, it will be a technical foul. Not good enough. If you want to stop players from pretending that they are hurt or pretending that they have been physically assaulted, you gotta make it hurt them. A technical foul, one shot, forget about it. I got a way better plan. If you are caught flopping, the team, the other team, will get two free throws and the ball. We're gonna make it like a flagrant foul. The only way to stop players from trying to get calls like that is to make it so when they don't get the call, it actually hurts their team in a significant way. So for example, if you pretend to get hit by a pitch and you start running to first base and you weren't hit by a pitch, that should be an automatic strikeout. And you're gonna say I'm overreacting. But one of the things that I try to do on the competition committee is eliminate things that make the game worse. When you're watching basketball, are you happy to watch these flops? Does it not annoy you? Do we not yell, what a crybaby, get up. And sometimes we see the referees doing that motion with their hands saying, get up, I saw that you weren't hit. Well, we're gonna make the punishment so significant that the only possible way that a player would still flop is if they're stupid but we'll coach players not to be stupid. What about the flop that is not a flop, where there's actual contact? Don't worry, I got that covered too. We're gonna make a separate set of challenges. You get the FC. You get one FC per game, the flop challenge, where if you can prove by instant replay and video replay that in fact, it was not a flop, you get your challenge back, you get the ball, and you get a free throw. So the one free throw that they wanna give to the team who gets flopped against, I wanna give one free throw to the flopper. Because if you get called with flopping, you challenge it with a flop challenge, and it turns out you weren't flopping, I wanna reward you for that because you're being honest. I wanna reward players for doing the right thing because all these executives like me and all these teams and all these managers and players, they're all trying to get one over on the referees and the umpires. Let's change the behavior. And there's only one way to do it, with penalties, meaningful penalties. 
I'm going to give you a way to see about flopping. The flop rule is going to pass. Not my rule, the rule that Shams told you, which is the technical foul one shot. I don't think they're ready for my rule. I don't think they want my rule. They think it's too prohibitive, too restrictive, too penultive. I'm having a Friday brain moment. It's too big a penalty. So wait to see when I tell you something's going to happen. If it does great, if it doesn't great, here's what's going to happen. The flop rule will pass before next season and you will see technical fouls called, but I don't think players will change their behavior until the penalty gets even more severe. We'll see what happens. All right, when we come back, we're gonna review a mini series that just ended starring Elizabeth Olsen and Jesse Plemons called Love and Death. And then we got a great question. Here's a, a way to get on the show. If you wanna get it, so you wanna talk to Samson. If you're from Wisconsin, you have a leg up already. We'll be right back. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. It's David Sampson here every day, 8 a.m. with Matt Coca. Guess what? Monday is Memorial Day. That means it's a holiday. And that means at 8 a.m. we'll be here live. We're not taking Memorial Day off. Coke and I were talking before the show. It's a day that ends in Y that's not Saturday or Sunday. That means we do a show. So please join us Monday. Open your eyes. Join us 8 a.m. live for a new show. I got a busy day after this show is done wrapping. I've got my first sort of longer workout for this race I'm doing in September, this 4448, running four miles every four hours for 48 hours. The training run today is four miles every four hours for eight miles. No, four, eight, 69. It is four miles every four hours for eight hours. So I'm gonna run like at 10 a.m. Eastern and then stop and then run again at 2 p.m. Eastern and then my weekend starts. I don't know why I just told you that, but it's in my head right now because my back hurts and my legs hurt. Anyway, let's go on. Love and death. I just finished episode seven. Had you heard of this story before? This is on HBO Max. This, uh-oh, 1268. Love and Death is on Max, which I had to download on all my devices, thank you very little, because HBO Max is no more. So don't forget to do it by the finale of Succession, which is this weekend, which you can now guess what's gonna be reviewed on Monday. But I downloaded it, 
I watched the final episode of Love and Death. It's seven episodes. Here's the story. In a small town in Texas, a man and a woman had an affair. <gasps> Can't be. Elizabeth Olsen plays the woman. Jesse Plemons plays the man. Lily Rabe plays the wife of the man who's with Elizabeth Olsen. The affair stops. All of a sudden, someone's dead. All of a sudden, there's a trial. All of a sudden, there's a result. And it's a true story. The story in Love of Death is about a woman named Candy who is the last person in the world who you would ever think would take an ax like Paul Revere and hit someone 41 times. Does she get convicted? Does she get acquitted? Is there even a trial? The performance by Elizabeth Olsen. What, Coca? Not, um, it's uh, Paul Bunyan. What? <laughs> Stop. I got to tell you my Paul Revere story. I was yesterday with my son who is, I was taking him to the airport and he's, God, the brain is funny. He's leaving for the summer to work at a, at a firm uh, in Israel, actually. And I was taking him to the airport and we were talking about history and talking about things that we know or things that we don't know and the backstory of things. And we were talking about Paul Revere and how many people actually know what is the Paul Revere story? Was he the guy on the horse? Was he the guy the British were coming? Was he the only guy? Is that how they found out? What does it mean they were coming? Coming from where to where? And we figured that under 5% of the country would have any idea. So Paul Revere has been in my head, but clearly when we're talking about an ax, we mean Paul Bunyan. Sorry, thank you. So a Paul Bunyan-like ax murder and during the course of the seven episodes, you learn how this story happened, how the affair started, what happened after the affair, what the crime was, and the finale is a pretty big detail about what happened the day of the crime. But the episode six or five has a psychologist involved and there's hypnotism involved. It is outstanding. There've been a bunch of TV movies made about this, but this one to me is the best because it's the only one I've seen. It is way worth your time. If you're an Elizabeth Olsen fan, she is fantastic in this. Not like an old man, but still good. Not like in, what was the show, Coca, that she was just in the Marvel TV series that I watched? Uh, Wanda, Wanda Forever, is that what it's called by chance? I like this better. Love and Death, seven episodes. I don't want you to put it above Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or Dave or Succession or Ted Lasso or even Beef, but it really is worth watching just to see the kind of crazy stuff that goes on in this world. All right, Coca, this is an important moment right now on Wisconsin. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Samson. I gotta be the proudest guy born in Milwaukee. I love the fact that I was born in Milwaukee. I love the fact that I went to summer camp in Eagle River. I love the fact that I went to college in Madison at the University of Wisconsin. I absolutely love every part of Wisconsin, every part, even Kenosha, Sheboygan. I love them all. So you wanna talk to Samson's when you have a question. And if you have a question, get into my Twitter at David P. Sampson, hit follow and ask the question. 
David, I'm a big fan of your show and from Wisconsin. That's it. You are on the show, period. Go Badgers. That was in the question. Thank you. That's someone who knows me. Is this someone who knows me? Hmm. Here's the question. Is it possible the Brewers will move? Say it ain't so. Now, I normally would change that and I'd put sick if I were writing because ain't is not English. It's say it isn't so, but that was how you wrote it. It's not a very Wisconsin-y thing. All right, what are we talking about? The Milwaukee Brewers, they play in Miller Park, which is now American Family Field. It's the ballpark where the All-Star Game was. It's the ballpark where it was so hot during the All-Star Game where Bud Selig did the shrug, the All-Star Game, that changed the rules of this time it counts. All of these amazing things. There's so much going on in Milwaukee. There's the, the Fifth Ward. There's the North Shore. It's close to Arlington where the Bears are going to play. How could the Brewers move? Guess what? We've got a money situation. Let me give you the background. When Miller Park was built, people may not remember how hard it was to get this done. Bud Selig was able to cut a deal. He was the owner of the Brewers before he was commissioner. Even during commissionership, he was the owner of the Brewers, but they called him the interim commissioner in order to make it okay that he also owned a team. Eventually, when he was named the actual commissioner, which he already had been the actual commissioner, he had to sell the team to Mark Ananazio. But Miller Park was built when there was a brand new tax levied upon not just the people in Milwaukee, but in five counties surrounding Milwaukee County. And that tax revenue from a brand new tax was used to fund Miller Park. Let's just call it to fund Miller Park, if you don't mind. It passed. It was difficult. There was a fight. Somehow, Bud Selig ended up not becoming unpopular. Somehow, the team president did not become unpopular. Somehow, they found a way to realize that having the Brewers in Milwaukee made a whole hell of a lot of sense. What they didn't find a way to do was figure out how to fund capital repairs when the Capital Reserve Fund could no longer fund capital repairs. Does that sound familiar? That's the Marlins deal I cut. We said we have a 38-year lease. We'll figure out how to fund the first 10 years. But after that, hey, we'll figure it out when it happens. There's been silence in Miami as to what's happened because Marlins Park is more than 10 years old. But the reason why you kick the can on that issue is because the team does not want to agree to fund repairs going forward. And the county, the public does not want to agree to fund repairs going forward because there's no revenue stream in the current day to fund that future obligation. And the team doesn't want to have that future obligation on its ledger because it quashes the value of the team and it hurts the cash flow of the team. So what do you do to get a stadium deal done? You ignore it and you worry about it when the time comes. In Arizona, the time came a year ago where Arizona, the, the Diamondbacks said, hey, if you guys don't build us a new stadium, then you better come up with a way to give us a billion dollars to fix this Chase Field because it's no longer state-of-the-art, no longer good enough. And we don't know where it's gonna come from, but we're not doing it. We may move like the Coyotes, but we're not funding renovations to this field. And now in Milwaukee, we're hearing the same thing. 
The Brewers are saying we are not going to fund renovations. The Democratic governor had a deal in place. They were going to finance $448 million in long-term renovations, making sure the Brewers stay in Milwaukee and the Republicans in the state legislature and locally have said, no merci, we ain't going to do it. So guess what happens? In comes Commissioner Rob Manfred. Hello, Rob. Welcome to Milwaukee. The last place in the world Rob Manfred wants to go is Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It gives him flashbacks to having to go to Milwaukee all the time to meet with his former boss, Bud Selig. He doesn't want to be anywhere near it. But guess what? There's a problem. Public money is needed. And when public money is needed, one of the jobs of the commissioner, the way to make a lot of money when you're commissioner, you ask for it, Rob, you've got the job. Sometimes you got to go to places you don't want to go. Is it a coincidence that Rob Manfred was in Milwaukee talking to Brewers players as part of his, I want players to like me after the lockout, so I'm going to go visit them during the course of the season. You think when they put his schedule together that they chose this week to go to Milwaukee out of nowhere because he was available pre-Memorial Day and after that he wants to be golfing? Absolutely not. There are votes going on right now. There are meetings going on right now in Milwaukee and in Wisconsin to figure out whether or not this money is going to be funded publicly. So Rob Manford comes in under cover of meeting with players, which is total horse hockey. It was there, he was there to make a quote that was pre-written about Milwaukee and about the stadium. And he did not disappoint. He made it very clear that he wants the Brewers to stay in Milwaukee. He made it very clear that he does not want Miller Park to become like the Oakland A's Coliseum, where it's ignored and it goes from being a first-class facility to a steerage facility. He acknowledged that the Oakland Coliseum was never as first-class as Miller Park because you cannot acknowledge that a non-new stadium, a non-baseball-only stadium can ever be first-class. You have to be baseball only to get that designation. And that's what Miller Park is. So he said to all of you to here in Wisconsin, we have a first class building here. If you don't maintain it as a first class building, you are at risk of losing your first class status. And then you're in risk of the team moving. Everybody's up in arms. Let me help you on a random Friday and tell you the Milwaukee Brewers are not leaving Milwaukee under any scenario. The Milwaukee Brewers are not gonna threaten relocation the way they did in Seattle, which is how they got to Milwaukee back in 1969. The Brewers are gonna stay at Miller Park. The public financing deal is going to happen. Renovations will be a deal that is cut between the Brewers and the state and the Brewers and the county. No matter how many people you hear, including some of the same legislators who are involved in the original deal, who are now saying what we were promised is not being kept. We were told that this original tax, once it ended because we paid back what we needed to pay back, that was it. We wouldn't burden our taxpayers again. I'm never voting for this. Guess what? They likely don't need your vote. 
There will be a vote. There will be an allocation that will be acceptable by the Brewers, acceptable by Major League Baseball, and acceptable by the people of Wisconsin and Milwaukee. Why? Because there's nowhere for the Brewers to go. Major League Baseball cannot keep having relocation candidates when they're trying to do expansion because the only way to expand is to have multiple cities ready to take on an expansion team. And if those cities are being considered for relocation, they'd prefer that to expansion. The Brewers deal will get done. Don't worry. What about the A's deal? Rob Manford in Milwaukee had an opportunity to really talk about Oakland. And he said something that is page seven of the let's get a deal done in Oakland playbook. He said a relocation vote could happen at the next owners meetings. Today is May 26th. The next owners meetings are in June. Coco, what's the date? June 13th to June 15th, is that possible? Is it that soon? I can't remember when the next thing is. Let's pretend it's June 25th, which would make it 30 days from today. Here's what has to happen in 30 days. The Las Vegas legislature has to have a bill put in front of it, a specific bill about public financing for an A's ballpark in Vegas. Then it has to be argued on the floor, then brought to a vote, then passed then signed, then there has to be a final deal cut between Vegas and the A's. A financing deal, who's building what? Who's responsible for what? A fully baked deal for a new stadium in Oakland. Damn it, a fully baked deal for a new stadium in Vegas. Then Oakland has to apply to Major League Baseball for relocation. Then there's a committee of people within baseball who will look at the entire package. The entire package is not just a completed finance deal for a stadium, a local TV deal, a pro forma projection. What will the team be like for the first one, three and five years in Vegas? What are the revenue sharing implications for the new team? What is the expense? What is the revenue? What is the benefit? All of that has to be prepared, looked at. Then there's a recommendation made by a committee within Major League Baseball. Then you have to have it voted on by the full owners. That cannot happen in 30 days under any scenario. Forget the fact that three of the days are Memorial Day weekend. Forget the fact that it's summertime where things go a little slower to begin with. I understand Rob's quotes, I really do. It's possible that a relocation vote could happen as early as June, Manfred said. He wants the pressure to be felt by both Vegas and Oakland. He had to acknowledge that it's very difficult to have a timeline for Oakland until there's actually a deal he buried the lead thinking that we weren't gonna pay attention. You can't vote on relocation until there's a deal and not just a deal for financing. 
But then Rob Manfred said something else. Do you think he was saying it for you to hear or for me to hear? Nope. He was saying it for Oakland to hear. When asked whether it was possible that the A's could stay in Oakland, he said, I think you'd have to ask the mayor of Oakland that. She said she had cut off negotiations after an announcement was made in Vegas. I don't have a crystal ball as to where anything's going. There's not a definitive deal done in Vegas. We'll have to see how that plays out. I think everybody's watching nothing personal. That's my takeaway. Because I've been saying the same thing for years now. The most likely scenario is a last minute deal to keep the team in Oakland. This Vegas deal is not close. And what's so bad about this situation is that for expansion, baseball's getting a sneak peek as to the difficulty in getting stadium deals financed anywhere. And expansion can only happen with public financing for a stadium in the city where there's going to be expansion. And baseball doesn't want Vegas to be off the list for expansion. The best way to not get turned down by the state legislature in Vegas is to not have a bill for them to consider. And the best way to have them not have a bill to consider is to have a deal done in Oakland where the reported gap between the A's and the city of Oakland was smaller than what the A's have given up in Vegas from what their original deal was to what their current deal may be. Think about it. It makes no sense or dollars. I'm going to give you another way to see, actually, if you don't mind. This is my second way to see of the day. I told you the flop rule will pass. I want to give you a second way to see. And this is an official way to see. There will be no relocation vote at the June 13th to June 15th owners meetings. There'll be discussion. No doubt about that. But an actual vote by the 30 owners on the relocation of the Oakland A's to Las Vegas will not happen at the June owners meetings. And you can book it. All right, nothing personal pick of the day. We had the Celtics minus eight over the Heat. How did we do? We won. We had the Mets beating the Cubs. How did we do? The Mets crushed them. We won. We're 80 and 78. The Mets-Cubs, I never viewed as a major rivalry the way I view sort of Dodgers-Padres or Yankees-Red Sox or Mets-Yankees. Marcus Stroman has tried to make the Cubs and Mets a rivalry. Marcus Stroman had a few funny words to say after he beat the Mets. He was pretty exuberant in his victory, but he's like that. Outspoken player, loves showing how enthusiastic he is. I'm trying to be nice here. I'm not a huge Marcus Stroman guy because I believe that his passion far out shines his talent. But all of that said, what Marcus Stroman did is part of the game. It is totally reasonable if you beat your old team to show emotion. We had a pitcher who showed a ton of emotion. It got him in trouble sometimes, but he showed a ton of emotion. We had a bunch of pitchers like that. A bunch of, we'd call him, what a red ass. 
was the expression we would use. Not like a redneck, that's not a nice expression, we don't say that. Red ass is someone like who has a burr up their butt, someone who just gets really into the competition, who really likes the idea. And I don't mean the Trevor Bauer sword celebration. I just mean someone who when they win or when they get a big out or a big strikeout, they let go emotion, they're excited, they're competing, they wanna win. You don't think players, when they've changed teams, wanna win against their old team? Of course they do. Marcus Stroman wants to beat the Mets and he beat the Mets. What's the big deal? Then some anonymous Met player says, well, we don't like that level of showmanship. That really ticked me off. I think the Mets should be much more focused on the fact that they're a mediocre team. We already covered the Cubs this week on the fact that they're a mediocre team. So anytime you have something to celebrate, you might as well celebrate. I get it. But spending the time worrying about what another team is doing, Buck Showalter, not my favorite manager, but boy, did he have it right. You don't like it, do something about it. Play better. Hell yeah. That's my view of that. So we're 80 and 78. What do we got this weekend? Ooh, we got the Apple TV game. Who has Apple TV? I started watching Silo. I'm gonna try to watch part of that this weekend. That's a new show on Apple TV+. Plus and we're getting to the last Ted Lasso. There's gonna be no Ted Lasso and no Succession and no Dave all in the same period of time. I am going to be despondent. I can feel it already, like my tummy hurts a little bit. Yankees are underdogs against the San Diego Padres because Joe Musgrove is pitching and the Yankees have a rookie going. The Padres lineup stinks. Yankees plus 105 at home against the Padres? Clearly I'm missing something, but not anymore. We are taking the Yankees plus 105. That's tonight. What about tomorrow? All right, let's talk about it to end the week. The Celtics are favored by a field goal over the Heat in game six. It's in Miami. If the Celtics win, there's a Monday night game seven, and we know how that goes. If the Heat win, they're going to Denver. They make the finals and all of this talk of panic and all this talk of blowing it, it all goes away because history is history. You can't lose a series when you're up three nothing. What will sports talk shows ever have to talk about if the Heat beat the Celtics? I guess the firing of Joe Missoula? Here's the problem. The Celtics are gonna beat the Heat in game six. I'm so sorry, Miami. You know I love you. You know I'm rooting for the Heat now, for sure. As much as I didn't root for them when I was with the Marlins, that's how much I root for them now. Celtics are giving three to the Heat. Way better team. They can smell it. And I told you that's a bunch of horse hockey. But now I'm looking at this game six matchup and I'm looking at the fact that Gabe Vincent, who's actually an important role player, Likely he's not going to play. And if he does play, he's going to be hobbled. Jimmy Butler, God knows what's going on with him. You don't know what you're going to get. Brown and Tatum, there's this feeling that if you start hitting shots, you don't miss. And it's only three? Celtics minus three overheat. So we get on Memorial Day, a game seven, where all the people who are taking off are going to have to work. I love that but we'll be live Monday, 8 a.m. as always to recap the weekend. Because for us, it's just business. 
Let's be careful out there. This is nothing personal. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.